Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's edition of the International Buzz podcast, brought to you by Wordby, the TMS that the entire Loke industry is buzzing about. Today, we have a really special guest on the show, somebody who has very impressive history, resume, CV, background in the Loke industry. He's worked in a variety of roles and has now published a book as well. Our guest is Mr. Renato Beninato. Renato, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Mark? Thanks for Very inviting good. me for this podcast. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule and, and joining us. Where are you at now? I'm talking to you from Zurich in Switzerland. I'm here for a conference that starts tomorrow and glad that we can make it happen. The beauty of uh, transcontinental communication. Absolutely. Well, I'm in Seattle right now, but I spent a lot of time in Zurich when I was working for CLS. That's and is the conference, which conference are you going to be at? Uh, SlaterCon is uh, happening here tomorrow. So by the time people hear this podcast, it was probably a few days ago or a few weeks ago or a year ago. I don't know when people are well, going we'll, to listen. We'll, this is the beauty of podcasts. We'll, they are Exactly. Talking. Well, we'll try to edit this and get it out for distribution as soon as possible. If you see Florian, by the way, tell him I said hi. Okay, I will. Okay, Renato, i got to be honest with you. I, I read your book and I was very impressed. I've been in the industry for a while and I thought I knew a lot had things figured out because I've worked in a variety of roles and a variety of companies. But your book brought a whole new sense of paradigm, a uh, new angle to how I, I looked at things in the industry. And I'm going to talk to you about that. But before I do, I'm going to ask you a question. In your book, you say everybody in the industry, they have a story about how they came to the industry and they're all boring. But I don't believe that. So can you give us a little background? What brought you originally into the local industry? Well, I'm uh, what is called a third culture kid. It's uh, one of those uh, people that are children of uh, expats or diplomats. Or My father used to work for a Brazilian national bank. And I lived in, I grew up in seven countries studying in five languages. So when I went back to my native Brazil, the opportunity to work with translation was something that happened because I spoke languages. In fact, the funny thing is that they were desperately looking for an Italian Portuguese translator for a film festival because the guy who used to do all the Italian to Portuguese movie translator translations had died. So <laughs> they found me, somebody referred me, and uh, I started actually translating for subtitling, which is something that now, almost 40 years later, is uh, something that is big again. At the time, I still worked with typewriters and film, and it was not <laughs> like streaming video and software. But uh, yeah, my background is in business is I studied economics and I worked as a tax consultant at Arthur Anderson. Like many people, especially in the early days of the industry, I came into the business totally by chance, by recommendation, by somebody that brought me in. What happens today, the difference that we have today is that you actually have a well-established profession, a well-established industry. We have a lot of external capital coming into the industry. You have university courses that teach localization, they, they teach project management for the localization industry, and the landscape is a little more different. There are some people that actually plan to come into this industry. They don't just uh, happen and come in by chance, like probably you did. Exactly. So 
out of somebody's tragedy, you had an opportunity and it leveraged all your experience from living around the world and your exposure to languages. And once you were in, it kind of just went from there. Yeah, well, it's that old paradigm. If you're going to do something, do it well. If you want to be successful, try to be the best at what you do. Invest in your training, invest in your knowledge. And uh, what I learned at a very early stage of my career was that um, associations working with other groups, with uh, people in the same space, gives you the strength to grow yourself professionally and help others with that. So I've always been very involved in um, industry associations, professional associations in the early days when I was translating hands-on with uh, typewriters at the time. My, big, my first big investment was buying three correctable typewriters. <laughs> That's amazing. Technology has come a long way. Well, out of all the roles that you've worked in, which would you say was the most challenging and also the most interesting? And they might be different, but give us, you know, give us your thoughts. I, I see myself as a translator at heart. The skill, the translation skill is something that you carry with you wherever you go. You don't lose that skill. If you've developed it early on like I have, I can sit down and start translating a book, text, a theater play. I used to translate a lot for theaters and movies, as I mentioned. I think that the most challenging activity that I had was probably once I had a translation company for 18 years in Brazil, and once I sold my company, I had to become VP of sales for Berlitz, which was at the time, I'm talking about 1999, the biggest translation company in the whole world. And I, through the sale of my company, I became the VP of sales of this uh, huge company with 40 salespeople, and I had zero experience in sales. So growing into that function was probably the most challenging, and at the same time, the most fun part of that. I've had big challenges afterwards. I think that uh, until about a year and a half, I was at Moravia, which is a, a beautiful Cinderella success story, a company that uh, essentially grew four times in the in five years in the period that I was there. As part of the management team, it was a huge group effort with all the talent in the company working towards that. But uh, those are, are fun activities. I think that every day when you wake up, you have uh, a challenge in front of you and you have to overcome that challenge. There are no really easy solutions, easy times. But what I think uh, has been a constant in my career is that I have fun with what I do. I love what I do. And I think you you could uh, determine that from uh, the language and the things that uh, we use in the book. Absolutely. It was fun, informational, but obviously you guys were enjoying the process of putting the content together and sharing it with us. Um, let me ask you, you know, you ran a large sales organization um, at Berlitz. You are also involved in business development sales at Moravia. For sales professionals in our industry, what advice would you give them? Uh, well, there's a, a lot of, uh, that's a hard question. Well, I think that the most important thing that I learned, and I say this uh, frequently, is that I'm a terrible salesperson. People believe, think <laughs> that I'm a good salesperson, which is not. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just because I am very 
outgoing and outspoken, it doesn't mean that I'm a, a good salesperson. In fact, having managed over 200 salespeople over the years, I think that the most important skill is actually being able to listen, which is not necessarily one of the things that I'm very well known for. Being able to listen and being able to understand the challenge of the client. And what we discuss in the book, it's not so much translation. And that's the big thing. Don't ever talk about translation. Translation is uh, its not what the client is buying. Most of our clients are buying a good night's sleep. They're buying solving business problems, selling their products internationally. There's always something else that they're doing, and translation is just a way to get there. So the advice that I would give to anybody going into sales in this space is don't talk about translation ever. That makes sense. And I often tell people, if your clients or prospects don't trust you, I don't care what you're selling and how cheap it is, how affordable, they're not going to buy it Absolutely. because they're going to worry that it might blow up on them. Absolutely. That's totally true. Okay. So, you know, in your book, and again, the, the title of the book for people who are listening, it's The General Theory of the Translation Company. I highly recommend that if you haven't read it, you do go and get it. And again, I'm pretty critical when it comes to what I read. I saw a lot of value in the book. And, and again, it was fun to read. And it, it taught me a lot. And I've been in the industry, a variety of organizations, um, variety of roles, and I thought I knew most of it. It taught me a lot. Glad to hear that. Thank you. No, seriously, it was, it was a great book. And it's available on Amazon. Um, you can get the ebook or the hardcover. In your book, you talk about the different roles, for example, the contract language professionals, the small LSPs, medium sized LSPs, the supersized LSPs. And you explain how they all are somewhat codependent and interdependent and work together. And I had always kind of looked at different translation companies, regardless of their size, as being in competition with each other. But, you know, you made it very clear that they actually support each other and fulfill, you know, specific needs for the niche that they're in. And they make it possible, for example, a small translation company makes it possible for a large or supersized LSP to add value to their ultimate end client. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, this industry is very fragmented, as we often talk about. The different sizes of companies, they fit different purposes. It's very hard. When we talk about the language services industry, we're talking about every single activity that exists in the universe. Because... Everything needs to be translated, whether that is uh, software, which is the localization industry that we talk a lot about, banking, manufacturing. If you think, if you look around you, wherever you are, there are products that are manufactured in other countries. There are products that use raw materials that are imported from, I don't know, if you have plastics, uh, you have uh, oil companies involved, if you have uh, metals, you have iron ore coming from Australia or Brazil that is going to be processed somewhere in China to become uh, steel and be part of uh, anything. I mean, anything that you see and touch around you has an element of translation that was involved in some part of its uh, production cycle. 
So it's an area that touches everything. And nobody in this space can be everything to everybody. You will have to find niches of specialization and you will look just look at the bigger players in this space. You will have some players uh, like Lionbridge and, and Transperfect to name two big ones that uh, will focus in four or five or in the case of Lionbridge, I think nine different verticals with different services. But there are just nine. There are maybe a thousand other verticals that they don't specialize, like, uh, I don't know, consecutive interpretation in Iceland. That's something <laughs> that's very niche, okay? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a market where you have room for multiple types of players. And what we talk about in the book is also when, when the, the question that you ask is about this buildup of uh, contract service providers or freelance translators that work for a single language provider that work for, and you create this, I'm trying to avoid the word pyramid, but it's the, <laughs> the most, uh, the best way to illustrate it. But they build up to this top value added service that is sold. So the freelance translator is at the base of all this uh, production structure that there is. But there is a market for that freelance translator, too. And the idea of the book is that we talk about the role of the translation company as an entity, regardless of its size, regardless of its position in the production chain. They will have some core competencies, some core functions that they need to develop in order to become a professional provider and a professional competitor in this space. I think that the, the best word to describe what happens in the language business is competition, is this concept of competition with cooperation. Uh, we're all in the same boat. And Word B is a good example of that because you are in a layer that we call infrastructure, this underlying technology platform that enables all these activities to thrive. Because today, without uh, technology infrastructure, you cannot achieve the productivity levels that customers expect. You cannot manage complex uh, projects. You cannot monitor hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of transactions that are happening on a regular basis in multiple geographies, multiple languages, multiple currencies and all this complexity that is in place. So you need to have tools that allow you to manage and automate as much as possible of that process. And this is a, a core support activity that every uh, translation company needs, uh, a technology framework to develop its services. Well, I would absolutely agree with you on that. And I've worked again, for a variety of organizations, the ones who have adapted technology in the smart way are much more effective, both at delivering value to the clients, but also retaining their people. Because, I mean, if you look at a role like a project manager, it can be very, very challenging. And if you're trying to do everything in a, a manually, it can take a long time and be quite stressful. Which companies, or can you give me an example of really smart adoption of technology and how it's helped a specific case or a specific project to go much more smoothly or efficiently? Well, you see, Mark, the challenge with technology is that technology changes, right? And the reality is that whatever story I tell you today is already obsolete because new, new formats, new delivery mechanisms, new demands, new languages are coming up every day. I see a lot of 
creativity and innovation happening in the small and medium-sized companies. I've seen companies that have integrated their workflow and through the use of APIs or smart workflows, put their systems to work with uh, the client's system. So it becomes a seamless integration. The idea, ideal environment, and, and this is one of the areas where I think WordBee is strong, is the fact that you can integrate with the client system and you don't need to have the client learn how to use your system. Each one works in their own environment, each one works in their own system, and you put the systems to work together and talk to each other. One of the topics that is very hot in the stream these days is machine learning. And uh, companies are investing a lot of effort in trying to understand. And the beauty of machine learning is that you automate the repetitive tasks that you have in your processes. And by eliminating those repetitive tasks, you diminish the number of errors, you improve your productivity, you can do more with less, and you focus on the things that are out of the ordinary or what we call management by exception. So companies that are doing this stuff, and they are there are many all over the world, there are many that are using this uh, in smart ways. It's hard to pinpoint one, and then it would be unfair and, and forget others. But I've seen, I don't know, companies in... Uh, Southern Europe, in Spain and uh, Italy, doing a great job. Companies in uh, Scandinavia are doing a great job in achieving these uh, goals of automating what can be automated and focusing on the things that improve the quality of the service to the client. Okay, that talks a little bit about some the new technology and ways to adopt it. What about some threats to the localization industry, what would you see? And if you were running an LSP right now, or you have LSP clients that you consult with and guide them, what threats would you be concerned with? Well, I do, a big part of my work is working with both buyers and LSPs in defining their growth strategy and the way that they position themselves in the market. So let me tell you about a threat that everybody is afraid of, but it's not a real threat. And then we can talk about the real threat. Sounds the big good. threat. <laughs> the threat that everybody, that scares everybody is neuro machine translation. That's in everybody's mouth. You go to any event, there will be a significant percentage of people talking about neuro machine translation. You'll have plenty of booths with companies providing solutions for customized machine translation solutions and so on. So, and I do this frequently at events. I ask people, how soon do you think that machine translation will replace humans? And then I give them dates. I say 2019, 2029, 2050, or never. And people, they struggle between 2050 and never. But the reality is that machine translation has already replaced human translators in the majority of the work that happens. The Google Translate today does over 14 billion words of translation a day by that's some amazing. estimates. Yes, that's more than all the human translators in the world translate in one year into all languages. So if you take by the number of languages, Google Translate, Bing Translate, Baidu, and so on, they're already translating a lot more than the freelance translators are, or uh, even translation companies are doing these days. So that threat is not a real threat. Machine translation is just another 
service in the stack of services that uh, translation companies need to provide to their clients. As is another fad that was uh, very prevalent in the industry a few years ago was crowdsourcing. So we rode that wave of crowdsourcing. Nobody talks about that anymore. But crowdsourcing <laughs> is there. It is one of the services that companies provide and can provide to their clients. It's in their menu of services. So if you want to talk about threats to the business today, the real threat is actually lack of competent, skilled people to perform all the different tasks that require creativity, that require knowledge about processes, a little bit of automation. The skill of a project manager today is much different from the skill of a project manager from 10 years ago. A project so, 10 years ago would need to be a linguist. And today, other skills are more relevant than just the language skill. For example, the ability to use technology. Um, Absolutely. Right. The ability to use technology and to use technology smartly, not just uh, clicking buttons and shuffling files. You need to be able to learn how to customize workflows. You need to be able to learn how to use all the features that uh, a platform, a project management platform, a translation memory platform, or any type of technology that you want to use in this space. Even an accounting system can provide you so that you can generate what really matters for a translation company, which are margins and profit. Well, that makes sense. And one of the things that I've said and written about in the past is that a lot of outsiders tend to come into the industry and they manage by spreadsheet, which means they just look at everything, a linguist, a project manager, etc., as a cost. And immediately what they try to do is drive down costs by negotiating or finding lower cost linguists and hiring low cost or lower cost project managers. And what happens then is you tend to get what you pay for and there's a degradation sometimes, oftentimes, in terms of quality or performance. And so if you hire an entry-level project manager with no experience and you throw them into a complex project, oftentimes you'll have issues. And then your client will be upset and you may lose your client. So today you may look like you're adding to the bottom line or you're creating bigger margins, but ultimately you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot because you will lose the better linguists and your clients won't be happy with the service that you're delivering. Well, that's, that's you're touching on the, the key point of the conversation. It's not so much about the language part and, and the price and the margin. It's about the value that you generate and how the client perceives that value. I work with companies, I, I work with a client in California that has 78% gross margin in the translations that they do. That is amazing. They, they charge whatever they want because their clients are willing to pay for all the other things that they provide that are not just related to the translation process. It's like I say, clients buy a good night's sleep. They don't buy words of translation. And once you understand that one of your key differentiators is always going to be responsiveness, customer service, ability to solve problems, and to work well under pressure in a crisis situation, the bigger value you're going to have. If you start, one of the challenges that we have in the language industry, and this is something that is changing, Mark, is that 
I like to say that uh, some entrepreneurs in the language business have learned their marketing and their sales from grocery stores, from going to the supermarket. <laughs> and they want to talk about giving discounts or pay two, take three, or, or kinds of promotions that are very used in retail. And the service space is completely different than the retail space. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. When we spoke at Loke World, you talked about how when people join the industry, they tend to stay. <laughs> at the same time, I notice, and, and you may share the same observations, is that there seems to be a fair amount of turnover in the industry. I would call it, in some companies, quite high, you know, 20, 25%, sometimes 30% for high-pressure roles like project managers, for example. So why is it that people stay in this industry, but a lot of companies have trouble retaining people? Oh, this is a complex one, Mark. It's, it's, there are many possible answers to this, and this will vary according to the type of company and the type of management that you have in the company. Well, well let me ask you this. Yeah. If you were running a company and you wanted to retain your people, what kind of environment or what would you do or how would you advise your clients to um, do a better job of retaining their key people? Well, the people want to have a job that they, where they feel that they're meaningful and that they're doing something that is important and that is helping other people. So it's, it's this sense of purpose. I have worked with a company many years ago, it was very funny, where they had a very centralized approach to management. So I arrived at the company the first day I wanted to show uh, a slide share presentation on LinkedIn to the owner of the company. And then I wanted to show him a YouTube video and I couldn't connect to SlideShare or YouTube. And he told me, oh, he blocked all the social media in his office because he wow. didn't want his people to be distracted on Facebook or distracted on, on LinkedIn or anything like that, that they didn't even have a uh, individual emails for the project managers all the emails in the company went to info at and uh, they were distributed by an operations person an operations manager that would be micromanaging the functions of each person and it was very interesting because after he was a very smart guy the moment I explained to him that we are in a service business, in a people business, and the value that you provide to your client is not something that uh, is delivered by the company, but by the people in the company. And once the people know what they're working, who they're working for, why they're doing the job, how their uh, contribution is going to impact whatever they're doing, People are more motivated and they are more interested in, in participating in what they're doing. Uh, there is this great uh, presentation about uh, by Simon Sinek on TED, the one of the most famous TED Talks, where he talks about the different types of companies, the companies that work on the why and the companies that work on the what. And that applies to our business. The companies that have a purpose and know what they do and why they do it are much more successful than those companies that just focus on price and delivery. Absolutely. And, and again, it's, you know, you could pay somebody 10% more, but if you, if they're not happy about coming into the office, if they oh, don't yeah. feel uh, that they have some sense of autonomy, um, ability to make a difference or don't understand what their role is really, you're going to lose them. And I don't yeah, care. I, I, I had a sales guy who once told me that he got an offer for a job where he was going to make more money, but he didn't like the manager. 
So he said, a good manager is worth $1,000 a month for me. And he was <laughs> to lose $1,000 a month going to the other, staying instead of going to the other company. But he says, you know, $1,000 a month and having a good boss makes a big difference. <laughs> you know what? Those are really smart words. And what I've learned in life is that enjoying the people you work with, believing in your product, feeling good about going into the office is worth more than whatever extra another company is going to pay you. So really important stuff. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I just have a few more, maybe two more questions for you here. Okay. okay. First one about your book. And then, then I want to talk about what you're doing these days and you know, the kind of uh, projects you're working on. But in your book, you mentioned that companies that grow the fastest invest in salespeople. Mm-hmm. And I come from a sales background, and I can understand that argument. Um, at the same time, my observation in our industry is the companies that are growing the fastest now, especially the bigger players, they're just doing it through acquisition. And some of them seems to be smart acquisitions. Some of it these days seems to be a, a bit of a pricey acquisition play. And I've seen good acquisitions and I've seen poor ones, not in terms of the decision to acquire the company, but the follow through afterwards and how they integrate into the parent company or how they integrate the acquisition in the parent company. What observations or advice would you give? First off, let me back up. Do you still hold to your thought that the fastest growing companies are the ones that do it through sales or do yes. you see both? Okay. Okay. Why so, is so that? Let me tell you an anecdote because one of my ventures, I founded Common Sense Advisory and I used to say that after 70 years doing market research and analyzing this business, the most important thing that I learned is that the companies that have the highest number of salespeople are the ones that sell the most. So there is a direct correlation between number of salespeople and revenue. It's obvious. So a little comment before. This world of acquisitions and mergers in the, about among the large players and, and so on, we're talking about a sliver of the industry. It's a very small part of the industry. The majority of the companies and probably the majority of the listeners of your podcast are not in that league and they're not making those decisions based on EBITDA and uh, return on invested capital and things like that. They're making their decisions based on the day-to-day challenges that they have to deliver their translation. So for these companies, if they want to grow, the best approach is to hire salespeople. And the recommendation that I like to make is that don't hire one salesperson, hire three, hire five at the same time, because it's easier and it costs you the same to train multiple people at the same time. You create some competition and you create more opportunity for growth. But if you look at the most, the fastest growing companies, they're growing organically. uh, Moravia is a company, Transperfect is a company that grew to $650 million. They did make acquisitions, but their acquisitions represent maybe 15% of their total revenue. Most of their revenue is achieved organically, and this is a company that has over 500 salespeople. That's amazing. So, yeah, I still stick to this concept. That, okay. uh, But the challenge that companies have in our industry is not so much selling, but is managing sales. So the talent that is lacking is sales management, is not necessarily sales. If you have a good sales manager, somebody that knows how to motivate and strategize a growth path, that organization will be more successful than a company that just hires salespeople willy-nilly. 
Okay, so, so have... let me let me jump in there, because yeah. one of the most challenging jobs that I've ever had in the local industry is just hiring good people. And I always say, you know, if I hire the right salesperson, my job is almost done because good salespeople, they're self-motivated, they're learners, they, they get out there, they hustle and they make things happen. The challenge is, is how do you identify who's going to be a good performer and who isn't? And then the same can be with sales managers. Now, sales managers, sometimes you, you promote from within, you've had a chance to work with them and you've seen them. But even then again, even just because somebody's a good salesperson doesn't make them a good sales manager. So two-part two question, how do you identify who's going to be a good hire on sales? And then how do you identify who's going to be a good sales manager? Well, the way I avoid that dilemma is by hiring many. Okay. Uh, I don't know. There is no secret formula. You hire somebody very often you're going to end up hiring somebody that is good at selling themselves. All of us have done that. <laughs> yeah. They can sell themselves, but they can sell product. So the, how do you say, the approach, the best approach in this case is to hire, hire three, hire five, and let them, uh, we have a saying in Portuguese, which is, uh, if you have one, you have none, which means that, uh, you have no back, no backup. If that person fails, if that person goes away, if that person dies, you have to start from scratch. If you so start you with three or five people, you avoid that challenge and you create competition and you create a basis for comparison. Nobody's working alone. Everybody's competing with each other. And it's a better way to avoid the mistake of uh, hiring the wrong person. On the self-manager side... A very common challenge that business owners have is that they don't know how to manage sales because they never sold or they never were managed by sales managers. My recommendation in that case is that look for a professional sales manager, not necessarily a sales manager that comes from the industry, from the translation industry. Because what you want the sales manager to do is to manage the process, manage the pipeline, know what is the buying behavior of the client. And if you want to narrow down, hire a sales manager that uh, worked for a service company, for accounting companies, advertising, consulting, video production, or something like that, software development. These are services, and they're different from a guy who sells pharmaceuticals or cars or products that has a territory and has quotas and things like that. Uh, in sense. our case, you can hire a sales manager even part-time in some cases because it's not a, a, especially if you have a small organization, that function is not a full-time function. So to summarize, don't put all your eggs in one basket, put more eggs in there and let's see which one's going to perform, okay, on the sales side. And for sales management, hire experience, hire somebody with a proven track record. They don't necessarily have to be from the local industry, but if they're selling mm -hmm. services, it's a big advantage. I think that right there is probably worth the price of your book in terms of advice. Uh, it's probably worth a, a heck of a lot more because one bad hire or not having a good sales team can really hurt a company. I, yeah, again, don't want to take up too much time. Let's kind of wind this down. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your decision to set up your own consulting company and what you're doing these days, what kind of companies you're working with, projects, and, you know, what the future holds for you? Because I think you're also an adjunct professor. Um, I looked at your LinkedIn profile and you're doing a lot of different things. So tell us about, you know, your decision to go in this direction and, and what the future holds. I've been in business for 35 years or something like that. Like, I lost count. 
<laughs> and out of those 30 plus years, I was an employee only eight of those years. Most of my life, I've been an entrepreneur, I've been a business owner, I've been working with uh, creative and challenging projects. So after having worked for about, I don't know, six years in companies, I felt it was time to start a new business. And Nimzi, which means knowledge in Fante, uh, it's a, a language from Ghana, was born to share all this accumulated knowledge that I have gathered over the years in, in multiple functions. So the model is we sell subscriptions to reports. These are interactive and uh, very to-the-point reports written in a 21st century format. All of them are short and insightful, and they have a accompanying video that you can, if you don't have the time to read the whole report, in six minutes you can uh, have a, a good sense of the content of that report. But that's the starting point. A lot of the work that I'm doing today is... Um, consulting with large localization buyers and LSPs of all sizes, small and medium, on different areas and challenges that they have. The small LSPs and the medium LSPs, they want to grow, they want to grow internationally, they need sales support, but they need most of all a strategy and a vision for what their company needs to be. On the buyer side, they're working more on deciding what are the best tools that they need to use that are to, capable of surviving the changes in technology that are coming, company uh, tools that are responsive and that are able to deliver in an agile and changing environment. And I'm also working on some projects that have to do with defining what markets to go to, how to penetrate those markets, what better channels to use, how to choose between direct channels, distributors, how to handle the competition between the two. So some interesting challenges that companies have, but most of them related to growing international business. And this is where I think we bring some value to this space. It's helping through reports and consulting buyers and sellers of uh, translation services to grow and thrive. Sounds like you have a lot of really cool things going on and you're involved in a lot of interesting projects. You're continuing to learn and develop your practice, your business, your knowledge. What do you do outside the local industry? What do you do for fun? And where do you live? Where, where, where do you call home? That's one of the challenging questions. My base is in Massachusetts. My kids live in Massachusetts. That's where I have my house. That's the address on my credit card. <laughs> but uh, most of the time, I'm on airport lounges and airplanes. As you mentioned, I teach in Monterey. I am now teaching in an artificial intelligence course in Rome. I do consulting all over the world. I speak at events. I train people. I really enjoy this uh, international travel style. The thing that you ask, what do I do for fun? I collect countries. Okay. I, my goal is to visit three new countries every year. Mm -hmm. And just a little anecdote. I, this year, I went to Macau for the first time, Colombia for the first time. And I was in uh, France, in the south of France, a couple of weeks ago, and I rented a car 
and I drove to Andorra, which was two and a half hours away of, from where I was, just to go there, have a meal, and come back, just to meet my quota of this of 2017 of visiting three new countries. So that's what uh, I love, is getting to new places, getting to know new people, learning more about their languages, their culture, their food, their challenges, and this is what makes me happy. And I can totally identify with that. Um, having spent about 20 plus years outside the U.S. myself, I find that um, going to new places, meeting new people, language, culture, and just getting a new perspective is not only enjoyable, sometimes it's highly addicting. Absolutely. Um, Renato, it's been great talking with you. Really appreciate your time. Again, you know, it's fun speaking with you, but it's also um, enriching because I learn every, something every time I, I hear you speak or have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining the uh, International Buzz podcast today. Wish you the greatest of success in 2018. And uh, if you see, I'm sure, well, you said you're going to SlaterCon there. Say hi to Florian and uh, any other common colleagues that we might have. Thank you again. Thank you, Mark. Okay, take care, Renato. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Bye.